0: Enter Sad Men Podcast, every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked.
1: Hello, rock fans, wherever you are around the world, and welcome to episode number twenty-one, can you believe, of the Enter Sad Men Podcast. We're uh, into episode twenty-one and more about that episode and what we're going to be reviewing tonight in a minute. But briefly, we should just talk about uh, episode 20. And before we do that, I should introduce my compatriots, as ever. Mark and Steve are here with me. Hello, gentlemen. Hello.
2: And it's a pleasure to be here once more.
1: So, episode 20, uh, last time round. And we were given some homework. We were given some homework by Julie and Jodie, the uh, beautiful rock goddesses. Uh, following our interview with them. And they gave us three albums to review, which were Metallica's Black Album, uh, ACDC's If You Want Blood, and The Runaways Waiting for the Night. So it was an interesting uh, review session, wasn't it, Japs?
0: It was. It was. I, I think the thing that I took away from last week, though, was our complete fucking inability to say, enter Sandman. They say, I couldn't even do it then. Fucking hell, enter Sandman. It couldn't be easier or more difficult.
2: I know. That was the episode, wasn't it? This was the episode that was going to challenge us. And that's why I was, I was going to point out, if you wonder why Richard has been enunciating so carefully Enter Sad Men during the introduction, it's because last week we had the toxic storm of Enter Sandman turning up on our fucking episode. And uh, it was found yeah. to happen. We knew it was coming. Episode 20, they came along. <laughs> well, there you go. We, we're over it. <laughs> We're through it. But, but yeah. apart from that,
0: it was the fact that um, the Black Album didn't get quite as far up the uh, the Hall of Fame as you were hoping, Steve. I think that, that was the other takeaway, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. I, I always We always fancied it would give um, Led Zeppelin 4 a run for its money. For those of you who need to go and have a look at our Hall of Fame, go to the website um, and you'll see where everything is. Um, and we thought, it wasn't just me, was it? I think we all thought that um, Metallica, Metallica could usurp Um, Led Zeppelin four At the top of the board Didn't quite happen And it only goes to show As we always say It's going to take Something pretty special To knock that beast Off the uh, Off top spot Um, And all I would say Is that Runaways, waiting for the night ACDC's If You Want Blood Didn't get anywhere near it But um, They were a great listen On a show That was a good listen You know The Black Album It didn't get there
1: Because of two tracks Uh, And it's back to the Old adage that An album has got to be Consistently good Uh, to get to the top of our particular
0: rating. It was a good episode, though. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed this one as well, but in different ways.
1: Yeah, so we should talk about episode uh, 21, then, shouldn't we? We spun, as we do every week, Tico Torres's topical tombola of top
0: tunes. That name, the name of that changes every week, doesn't it? We can't (laughs) even remember what that's called. Never mind mind the name of the fucking podcast. We can't even remember what the bloody...
1: Anyway, it threw up a year, and the year it threw up this time around was 1971, uh, a a year that we've already had at least a couple of albums from. Uh, So uh, we had to go a-searching. And uh, perhaps, gents, uh, Mark, what uh, album did you choose for us to review this
0: week? Well, I I have to say, (laughs) 1971... It was a pretty barren year. It was a pretty <laughs> barren year. Um, that the, the only real, well, there are a couple, I suppose, a couple of obvious choices. The, the only real choice from nineteen seventy one we've already done. It's sitting at the top of the pile, so uh, that kind of paid, you know, put paid to that. In the end, I, I went for Uriah Heep's um, "Look at Yourself," and I went for it, not knowing anything about it, and I've been quite surprised by what I've discovered,
2: mm-hmm. Steve. Yeah, no, it's uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, the, the, the confirmation of what you said your first WhatsApp on Friday morning last time round was uh, I think we're going to be scraping the barrel a bit this week, lads. And um, <laughs> I think that the, the, the presumption was that one of us would pick fireball by Deep Purple and then the other two would be given some sort of short straw action. <laughs> but to be honest, having had a right good rummage around, I'm, I'm actually I thought, yeah, okay, 71 wasn't great, but I'm looking forward to going back to those early 70s. There's some really interesting stuff. So you've chosen some, you know, a bit bit of London kind of prog rock. I know what uh, Richard's chosen, which is quite proggy, and and I went first in the selection process. And if I'd have known, I'd have brought in some civilised prog, prog gold in the form of Genesis, his nursery crime. But I didn't because I was persuaded to go for an album I've had for quite some time, um, which is... MC 5s High Time, their final album before they finally imploded, which was always looking lightly before they even started. And
0: Richard.
1: Yeah, and as Steve said, I've uh, I've gone proggy as well. It was interesting how we all thought we wouldn't go for fireball. We're saving that for another day. I went for Yes's Fragile and was completely surprised that Steve didn't go for nursery crime. But there we go. We'll save that for another day. And Yes is Fragile. And uh, let's give you all a little listen to a few snippets of those songs on those albums right now. Hope you enjoyed those few snippets of what we're going to be reviewing right now, and as always, we do this in the chronological order of when the albums were released, and that means tonight we are starting with MC5 and High Time. Over to you, Steve.
2: Opening album sleeve notes. Let's get an overused phrase out of the way, out of the way straight away, shall we? And we used it once or twice in Enter Sad Men already, and that is ahead of their time. Because now we have the dictionary definition of ahead of their time. It is called MC5. This is high time. This is their third and final album. Um, I first came across MC5 when I saw a live performance of, uh, well, n- no, arguably about it. Their most famous song, "Kick Out the Jams," um, done live on telly twenty odd years ago. Don't remember where. It wasn't the it wasn't the album version, which only lasts three minutes. It was a proper live kind of jam, which is what they did, and what they did better than anyone. Um, It was about eight minutes, and I was absolutely spellbound. And I think that's what MC5 do to you. I think they just – there's something about this band that just kind of hooks you in. They only did three albums. As I say, this is the third and the final one. This is High Time, um, released on the 6th of July 1971, recorded at the back end of 1970 on Atlantic. They'd already crashed and burned at Elektra. They were not popular. They, They made enemies everywhere. This is um, a politically driven band. This is a band with very few friends who corporate America hated them. Mums and dads hated them. Everyone hated MC5, um, apart from their diehard fans. Um, And subsequently, their records didn't sell that well. So this one lasts best part of 42 minutes, produced by um, Jeffrey Haslam and MC5, which was a departure from the previous album, which was a disaster, when Atlantic kind of handed them a guy called John Landau, to produce back in the USA. And he was out of his depth. MC5 were too hard to deal with. They were just away with the fairies more often than not. Drugs is a story. It's just a common theme through MC5's evolution. So anyway, so when it came to doing high time, they went in with Jeffrey Haslam at Artie Field Studio in Detroit. And they gave us this, this, um, I just think, is a towering piece of work, just a, a resume of the lineup. They were... Famously, one of the most outrageous and, and perfect frontmen of all time, a guy called Rob Tyner, um, the twin guitar attack of Wayne Kramer and Fred Sonic Smith, uh, Michael Davis on bass. And when I say on bass, I mean a man who plays his bass, and Dennis Thompson, one of the great, great drummers. Criminally, we talked about the Runaways last week, last, uh, last time round, not lasting long, and MC5, absolutely the same. They came, they went. And they've gone, because Wikipedia labels everyone with something, they're called proto-punk. Just just bollocks, okay? I don't even know what proto-punk means, but it's not MC5. MC5 are jazz. They're funk, they're soul, they're rock, they're rock and roll, they're blues. They are punk, way ahead of their time. They're everything. It's a stunning cocktail. Um, And I can't talk hard enough about this album. As you're about to find out, Mark, do you share my <laughs> do you
0: share my joy? I do. I I, I had um, only ever heard "Kick Out the Jams." Um, "Kick Out the Jams" is is one of those tracks that, if you're into this kind of music, you you, you you couldn't have got very far down the road of listening before you'd heard the name of the song, even if you hadn't heard the song. And MC Five, I uh, knew were uh, you know a big deal um, right from the get go. However. I have, other than hearing "Kick Out the Jams," I haven't heard any MC5 until a week ago, and, and the reason that I haven't listened to it is because I listened to him to "Kick Out the Jams" the studio version and thought I have no idea what all the fuss is about, no idea at all what the fuss, what the fuss is about, and it's been an absolute joy uh, this last week because. This is a, a an absolutely sensational album. I think it's, and the thing that I think is most interesting about it is that although they have a really cohesive and consistent sound, all of the songs on this album, well, not all of them, but but I think about seventy percent of the songs on this album were written by different people. So they don't have, they didn't have a core songwriting team. Everybody just clearly pitched in, and I think the thing that I find most interesting is that rob tyne who's just got the most amazing voice i mean what he's why he isn't wasn't in a jazz band is beyond me but he's not he's in this rock and roll band and i assume that he would be one of the kind of leading creative forces in the band but he was responsible for one song he had a contribution to one song on this album i think there's a really really in the night we often call things interesting don't we when we don't really mean they're interesting at all, but I actually generally think this is a really interesting
2: album. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Was it, following on from that point? It was interesting that Kramer and Smith, the the, the boys behind MC5, they wanted uh, Tyner, or Rob Deminer, as is originally called, as their manager because of just contacts and connections and his and his influence politically. Um, he said he wanted to be the bass player, and neither happened. He just turned out to be one of the greatest front men of, of in rock history. But um, yeah, Rich, have you enjoyed um, have you enjoyed your time with High Time? Yes, definitely.
1: One word you didn't describe in terms of their musical style, and a, and back to a comment you made earlier, you have gone progressive. I would include prog. They actually typify what progressive rock is all about about taking all of these very very different other styles and genres of music, and <laughs> and throwing them into a concrete mixer. And I've been enjoyed listening to it alongside the other two because actually i think we have there yes there are other there are other prog albums we could have chosen but actually we have chosen three albums between them that really really started to drive um uh, progressive rock
2: listen i think this is going to be a good start to the show should we listen to this thing Okay, so we've got eight tracks on high time. So, yes, side side one. We've got Baby Won't You at two. We've got Miss X at three. We've got to keep moving at four. And uh, The Rebellion starts with Sister Anne, a song about a nun who don't give a damn about revolution. Not quite the subject matter (laughs) matter you'd expect to get the fires burning in this bunch of uh, uh, revolutionaries. But, you know, this is going to be a different 20 minutes or so talking about these guys oh it's great track great opener
1: for me this this is the bridge between the 60s and the 70s there's so much sort of stones and beetles to it and and it, and, it, and it's sort of crossing over and, and really starting a, ne- a next decade of uh, of rock
0: this is that this is an album where you wouldn't be surprised if if paul mccartney suddenly wandered in and did a bit of vocals while jimmy hendrix was on guitar you know what i mean it's, it, it spans everything, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. But, but Jimi Hendrix alone wouldn't be enough because this is strictly a two-guitar band, isn't it? Smith and Kramer are fantastic. There's always that second guitar. You've got that just kind of relentless um, twin assault. Yeah, so, so sister Around ceaseless riff. I mean, it goes on for, what, seven minutes, this track? But so, yeah, you've got a great riff running through it. The backbone is there. And then you add in, throw in some harmonicas, some piano, it's just it's just a really really exciting lively start, and then gets utterly weird at the end when they when it goes into some sort of Salvation Army march with the horns. I just don't get it at all. But it's um, why would you get it if you got it? You weren't meant to get it, probably. I don't know.
1: This, this song's got a good example of the chaos. I mean, because in the in the middle of it, there is at the same time a double harmonica and guitar solo <laughs> with. <laughs> so two harmonicas going and, and a guitar all at the same time but it somehow it works i'd love to know whether it was planned or they just i'm presuming they just went into the studio and let rip and just threw in whatever they felt they wanted to at the time
2: yeah well if you, if you go onto wikipedia and look at the high time page and it's um look at all the additional musicians on it it's like um it's like something out of a chinese restaurant it just goes on and on and on that menu it's unbelievable. <laughs> Everyone gets involved with this thing, and and you get a sense of it with pretty much every track. Um, and they go into "Baby Won't You," um, which is the second track. You mentioned Paul McCartney. I'm going to throw in the Rolling Stones here. It, it's a real foot tapper. Great bass line running through it, and yeah, the, the, this is this is the bass guitar played as an instrument, which is you know how it should be played. Um, he just you, it's it's just a big fun song. The, the, the only weakness. Um, with Baby Won't, just as far as I'm concerned, is that it just follows Sister Anne, and therefore <laughs> it's kind of a bit second division, but it's still a great track.
0: Well, I'll take your Rolling Stones and raise you Led Zeppelin, because the, the the verses in this wouldn't have been out of place on Physical Graffiti, or actually Zeppelin 4, but the chorus is completely the Stones.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I got that too. Uh, and and it's not only the, the chorus, the coming in i think from around the the second verse onwards are the little sort of high whittles on the guitar that are just typical keith Richards.
0: but you're right steve it's a great song but something had to follow sister and didn't it
2: so we're on to track three and i asked myself as we started miss x whether hanoi rocks had any idols and um yeah i'm guessing it was probably mc five this is the romantic side of uh rob tyner and the boys i mean if you know it's not a straightaway love song, far from it. It's a drifter, it's um of a kind, it's it doesn't light up the album for me, Miss X. I don't know what you think.
0: The intro, I I, I was getting uh <laughs> this is gonna sound really bizarre. I was getting um Simon and Garfunkel. I love this track, absolutely love it. I think, in fact, I might have put it on, I might have put it second as because it is so such a counterpoint to the two songs that have gone before it. To have split them up might not have been a bad idea, but I love it. I think it's just... It just shows their range, and um, uh, it's it's just it's wonderfully surprising.
1: Yeah, order-wise, I think back end of side one, track two, side two kind of thing, as you say, it's that, it's that, it's that take a breath, lay back a bit. I think this song... Is the, the the one song on the album where the production lets it down? Uh, it, it it's I, I don't know what happened to the production on on this track. It's it's not as sharp as the other. The drums sound shit, and uh, and that spoils it. I think it, it takes away from yeah you know, what what is a is a nice song. It's, it's a slow grower. I didn't not, I didn't like it much to start when I first no not did I. first hearing, but it, 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 it with every listen it's grown on me.
0: So I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with the production on this. I think they've just lifted Rob Tyne up into the up through the mix, and they've they've squashed everything back. I think that's fine because I think you want to hear him.
2: This isn't this isn't the best of him vocally, but I mean, yeah, it's um, yeah, but it is his song. It is it's, it's a singer's song, isn't it? It's it's what he's saying, but uh, yeah, it's okay. But from okay, we've got got to keep moving. Ah, oh, I love this. I just love this a bit. Only lasts three and a bit minutes. You wouldn't know that if you listen to it. It, it just, they pack it in. Um, it's a real bluesy, just rocker, a lovely, decent lit. I, I adore the little harmonica touches in it that are just exquisite. As I say, three and a half minutes. It sounds like a jam, for Christ's sake. And it, you know, it's brilliantly written, great arrangement, good production, fantastic lyrics. Yet again, more anger, more protest. Touch on some of their lyrics in a minute, but it's, um, yeah, super, superb song. Great way to sign off, sign one.
1: It's got a lovely pace and energy to it. Isn't it? Some really good breaks all the way through. This is the song
0: that's reminded us of a few things, is not it? Uh, a few other toms. So I, I got uh, Take Me With You, White Snake, on this. I think, uh, think Coverdale's
2: had a listen to this and thought oh, that's a nice riff. It's a great riff, yeah. it's a fantastic little hook. Yeah, I love it. Presidents, priests and old ladies, too. They'll swear on the Bible. What's best for you? Atom bombs, Vietnam, missiles on the moon. And they wonder why their kids are shooting drugs so soon. Brilliant. Brilliant. So and with genuine authority, given that we're in 1971, pre-anything, possibly modern. Let's flip that disc and we're on to future now, which is future stroke now. Which I'm guessing is in two parts. In fact, it definitely is in two parts because I love one of them and I'm not that bothered about the other. And they are quite distinct. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a kind of lumpy segue, but on an evening when we're doing Uriah Heap and yes, it might not actually seem that lumpy. More of that later. But yeah, good track. Um, another the, the, the first part of this track, great triumph of a riff, yet again. And I've got to talk, Rich, because we're going to talk about Chris Squire later. I mean, bass player supreme. Michael Davis' is bass playing on this, on this track, on this album, from an era when, you know, people played their bass. They didn't just, they didn't just bang along. This bloke can play that instrument and use it as part of the band, um, an exhibition of how to do it. And, yeah, I, it, it, as I say, this track just loses its way when it didn't need to, because the first half of it's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Future is a
1: fantastic three-minute pop jazz rock song. And then now is a dirge. <laughs> it was quite hard to mark. I had to mark it in two parts?
2: Yeah, that, that's that's a really valid point. What what now is? But what now is 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 their state of mind at this time? Because it's because it's it's weird and it's way out there. It's spaced out. It's kind of stonerish, isn't it? Um, you know, you could argue it's quite atmospheric, but it's. Um, I think they're just a bit too off their heads at that stage. And um, yeah, track should have stopped at midpoint.
0: Just feels like Hawkwind went into the studio, took the MC5 hostage, and took over the rest of the track. It's, it's, it's a bizarre composition. Um, Love future,
2: not so keen on now. Not sure about yesterday. Okay, so second track on the on on the B side is um, Poison, um, a song about corporate power. Apparently, Wayne Kramer explained in an interview that. Um, he was jetting into an airport up in Michigan where he lives, lived. Saw the sky change color on the descent, where in his words, you could see a line of brown. He just used that as a metaphor for the shite that corporate America was. Yeah, great song. I loved, Again, I love the lyrics in it. But, but I ripped my pants doing some dance that I learned in France. I wonder if that's kind of a reference to the sort of Paris Spring. They're true rebellion and revolution in, in this band. And um, they... they you know, you could see why Middle America didn't like them or didn't want to didn't want to entertain them. Let's put it that way. But good song. Good song.
0: This is a band that really does personify that old saying that art must do what art must do. You know, there's no there's no planning in this, is there? Because if if, if it was planned, they wouldn't be singing the lyrics they're singing or playing the music they're playing, they'd be doing something a lot more accessible. I think this is just, this is just, they, they needed to do it. I, this is the, first, the original thrash solo that I think. I love this song. It's probably my favorite on the album.
1: Yeah. Another song with a fantastic start. My favorite riff, I think, on, on this album. Well, so many, so many riffs in the other songs. But yeah, I really like the riff. And, and I was reminded listening to this, uh, of Blue Oyster Cult. I know Blue Oyster Cult were big MC5 fans and they, uh, They covered Kick Out the Jams a lot live. Uh, But I could really hear echoes of this song and the way that it's arranged in uh, what Blue Oyster Cult then put out.
2: Oh, it's just so of its time. Of its time, Stanley, I mean, Detroit, Michigan in the late 60s, what a place to be musically. If you had the likes of them and Iggy Pop and the Stooges and Grand Funk Railroad, you had all all the stuff coming out of Motown. I'd love to have Michigan in the late 60s. Oh, good. Okay, so um, yeah, just a couple to go. Over and over is the, the penultimate track, which it's just a blinder. You, you got this, it starts, kicks off with a sort of dreamy, it's a distorted sort of psychedelic guitar intro, and then it goes into a fantastic instrumental, um, which just flows. And then we get into, um, and then we get into a kind of the Who feel to the to the to the to the singing, the verses and the chorus. Um, I, I mean, I would suggest there's a little bit of Roger Daltrey in, in Rob China, both very charismatic frontmen. and I, you, you hear it a lot in this song that the arrangement of the song is quite hoo I thought. I guess in a way,
1: because of that, it's fairly predictable. <laughs> and, and so it was not as impactful a song on me as the rest of the album uh because the other ones i didn't know where they were going to go next and i was almost a little bit disappointed that this carried on pretty much the same way for five
0: minutes i think this is this is the only song on the album that actually chronologically goes backwards because it's it's got a much more 60s vibe than anything else on the on the album i think Mm. this this is early who it's not late who
2: talk talk about setting the bar high that the that Rich doesn't love this to quite the extent of the others just because it's, um, it's just very good all the way through at a kind of similar place. I, th- I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely get what you say. I think there's a little bit more going on than that, personally, but there's nice things in it to go with the, the, good, the great riff and there's a you know, nice solo. It's, um, yeah, my hand's up. I just think it's a fantastic track. And so just when you're MC5'd out and you think life can't get any better... Oh, boy. We get skunk sonically speaking. Um, and welcome to the world of Dennis Machine Gun Thompson on drums. And we have a resident drummer who will pass judgment on him in a minute. So the, 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 this track basically kicks off with a sort of 60-second drum solo. It is not an ordinary drum solo because he's not an ordinary drummer. Then the rest of the band joins in. Talk me through it, Richie Baby. I love Dennis Thompson. you do a fantastic drummer.
1: There's... So many styles in this one minute. You can hear soul. You can hear jazz. You can hear Latin. It just sounded like a drum intro, and and then then the guitars suddenly crash in. Uh, yeah, and, and watching him live, I mean, my goodness, he, uh, he thrashes hell out of a five-piece kit.
2: Yeah, that's what you got to bear in mind. The minimalism of the kit he's got in front of him, and he's um, yeah tearing it apart. And yeah, and and you and and this this track then just gets. Bigger and madder and better and more and more insane as it goes on. I've read one or two people call it, you know, one of the greatest rock and roll tracks ever, which is, you know, hyperbole on a daft scale. But it's fantastic. That trademark backbeat runs all the way through this madness, by the way. You know, it's, it's, it's a decent length track. And it the, 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 that kind of an ACDC-ness of the backbeat. They keep going. They just keep going. It's relentless. It's really good. Complete madness. Superb track. Mark, well, you're shaking your head. Riley.
0: Just no, this is awful. This is awful. What are you two blithering on about? Honestly. I, am I listening to the same? The, the name of this song is a clue, fellas. It, it it's a song that was written when they were completely off their shit. And it sounds like it. What are you two talking? This is. Genuinely, you think
2: this is brilliant? I think it's sensational. You need to, you're a heathen. You need to re listen. Wow. Go and do it again. Get some jack right. panels in your hand. Go chill out and have another listen. Maybe that's what you need.
0: I don't mind the horn section. The rest of it's just a fucking
2: mess. Yeah, but a good mess. No, it's not. It's just a mess. Are you still it's getting not- that? Has that backbeat left your head yet? I, I doubt it has. It's still going. It's still going. It's just. Sensational.
0: Yeah, but in that sense, it's a bit like Donald Trump. Just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. I don't like it anymore. I'm I'm clearly not hearing what you're hearing. I think that's that's probably evident. I, I had to turn this
2: off halfway through. I'm I'm a broken man. I can't believe it. <laughs> I cannot believe yeah. it. It is a challenge to listen to.
0: I'm genuinely pleased you two like it. <laughs> Is that, the, really is that the best you can do? <laughs> yeah, it is really. I, I didn't like it. I'm really. I'm so sorry. I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all.
1: Can I just say it's it's really really good to uh, to listen to an album where we haven't used the words interesting and inoffensive. Um. So highs and lows. My single low would be that now bit of future and now. So, yeah. I, but in terms of an overall song. Yeah, I mean, it probably pulls future down close to the bottom. And yeah, I, I didn't get, um, I, I, I didn't get what you two got about over and over. I thought it was more formulaic than the, the rest of the album. So probably apart from the apart from now, that will be towards the bottom. That, not, nothing. I say apart from now, that the, that now piece on this album was was bad. It was a thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable listen.
2: Excellent. Okay, well, Mark's not having a go. Um, so me... Um, no. <laughs> no, go on, mate. Brace me. Tell me. Tell me what.
0: Uh, seven-eighths of this album uh, is absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. There were a large number of tracks that were vying to be my favourite. I think the greatest compliment I can pay this album is that, that my favourite track has changed almost every time i've listened to it so tonight my favorite track is over and over but on another night or another day it could be a completely different one the my low you'll be very surprised to know is the drug adult nonsense that closes the album um so you know i just but i in saying that i also accept that i am as you quite rightly say steve a heathen i know nothing and I admit to knowing nothing about music, so therefore that's probably why I feel the way I do about it.
2: All I would say is that if your, if your highs and lows have been changing on a, every time you listen to it, then give it another seven listens, and I bet you skunk on your favourite favorite track. I'm tempted to say it, but it is my favourite, just to spite you. Um, but I'm going to say, well, I love Gotta Keep Moving. There's there's many on this. I love Poison, I love over and over, I, but I love Gotta Keep Moving. And If there's a low for me, it is Miss X. Yeah, that's been a blast. That's a really good welcome to a year that we had doubts about, 1971. And uh, let's hope the rest of the uh, the rest of the shows is good. Well, that was fun. So we've kicked off um, our 71 special stateside with MC5 and High Time, and now let's go closer to home with something very, very English and Mark. Uh, uriah Heep's third album if you will opening album sleeve notes so
0: yes 1971 sat in my armchair a week ago thinking jesus christ how are we ever going to get a, a podcast out of this rubbish unless we go really predictable and go deep purple black sabbath and a another uh and then uriah Heep pops up and i thought ah, i've listened to and quite liked a couple of uriah Heep albums abominog in the 80s, um, and Raging Silence in the 90s. And I thought, well, ah, a bit of 70s heap, that might do the job. My other options were pretty limited. Funnily enough, I did have a think about Fragile, and then I listened to the first track, and I thought, no. Um, And yet I ended up listening to it for a week anyway, so we'll come on to that shortly. Uh, But I went for Uriah Heaps' Look At Yourself, third album, uh, released November the 8th, 1971, recorded in July of that year, uh, released on the Bronze record label. So Jerry Bron, who produced this album, it was his own independent label and it was distributed through Island Records. It runs to 41 minutes and 14 seconds, uh, which as a, I suppose, pseudo-prog album, uh, is quite is, is on the short side. Um, it was recorded at Lansdowne Studios in London and the lineup was uh, David Byron, on vocals, all the vocals except on the first track. Mick Box on lead and acoustic guitars, one of the only real ever presence in the band. Ken Hensley on keyboards, guitars, backing vocals, just about every other instrument you care to name, and also took care of the vocals on the title track. And then Paul Newton and Ian Clark on bass and drums, respectively. It peaked in the charts at 39, spent just one week there before it dropped out like a stone, Uh, And we have a seven-track album on our hands for this. starts on side one with the title track, Look at Yourself, followed by I Want to Be Free, and then the 10-minute epic that is July morning. Uh, Not the only 10-minute epic on the album either, as we slip into side two, Tears in My Eyes, Shadows of Grief, What Should Be Done, and Love Machine. This is widely regarded by Uriah Heat fans as their best album. In fact, I was listening, uh, watching somebody who I, I really enjoy watching on YouTube, actually. And if you, you haven't checked him out, um, if you're listening to this and you haven't checked him out before, uh, he goes under the name of Sea of Tranquility. And uh, what he does which is quite interesting. He, he rates, he takes one band and he rates uh, all of their albums from worst to best. And uh, he also came up with this as Uriah Heap's best album. And Uriah Heap have released, I don't know, something like, uh, Two thousand three hundred and forty-three records uh, since the, since nineteen seventy, I think. A, a bit like a bit like MC Five, we have got uh, a special guest. Uh, we've mentioned him once already, actually, in the program. I I've I'd forgotten about this. Manfred Mann plays the Moog synth on both July Morning and Tears in My Eyes. And one piece of non-album related trivia, but Uriah Heat trivia, is that the Lee Kerslake who joined for the fourth album. And went on to play with Ozzy uh, on *Blizzard of Oz* and *Diary of a Madman*, uh, and became a long-time member of Uriah Heep. Well, as we record this, he died uh, three weeks ago. So, um, yeah, we talked. We talked uh, a while back about uh, Eddie Van Halen. Um, Well, you know, Lee Kerslake. uh, One, another one to go as well. So, um, there you go. That's it. Uriah Heep. I I really enjoyed this album. Lots of Uriah Heap records for me are hit and miss. I, I, I know two of them really well. I've heard uh, and abandoned some Heap albums I have um, heard and sort of toyed with for a period of time and then abandoned them. But they, they, I really enjoyed this. It's it's kind of it's where Heap went heavy. How did you guys get on with it?
2: Yeah, I think hit and miss sums it up very nicely for me. You're talking about Uriah Heap's career. I'm talking about this album. 1971 was the year of the synthesizer, wasn't it? I think there's no two ways about that. It's the year of the organ. Everyone loved an organ in 1971. Um, we've got lots more to come yet. What's 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 the best thing I can say about Look at Yourself? It's big in Bulgaria. That sounds like a Spinal Tap thing, doesn't it? But um, <laughs> they're better known. They're better. This is an album that's better known to Bulgarians than it is to me. Put it that way. But I've I've, I've loved listening to it in, in as much as I love listening to anything different I've learned before. I love prog rock or a lot of it. I mean, obviously, the whole point about prog rock is you you it's difficult to love it all because that's the very nature of the beast, isn't it? It is different and comes at you from all sorts of funny angles, as this album does. Um, there's there's a lot to commend it and a few you know you, you, you call them missteps, but I just call it prog. Which? <laughs> really, listen to it. It takes
1: time uh and it needs your attention uh, I, I, all, all three of these albums uh have, have needed some close attention uh, for this episode but it's it's it took a while it took it took probably about three three four listens to start to get into it and to start to understand the structures and the songs and and what i was listening to
0: so side one opens with the title track look at yourself ken hensley on vocals uh, as you rightly points out, Steve, we're we're into organ land quite quickly, aren't we? This is um I mean, they start off heavy. This this is a heavy track to start off with, and it's not. It's you, you kind of get quite. I got quite excited at this point, thinking, "Bloody hell, this is fabulous!" And you know, this is going to be an album that you know I, I'm going to look at. I'm going to think, "God, that's a gem I missed." Uh, I, I don't feel like that about this album overall. I really, really enjoyed it. I think we're treated at the start to possibly the stronger part of the album, aren't we? Which you would expect for
2: track one. Views. Yeah, well, I echo that, and also you kind of you kind of sense that you know that this album, this this track, isn't going to be as straightforward as it is in the first few minutes because it gallops along at a right old lick, fantastic. But you 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 know just because you just know that there's something else to come because that's. That's the nature of not just Uriah of uh, that kind of era of music. And I would like, interestingly, I like the singing on this track more than any of the other, more than any other tracks. I've just got an issue, and who doesn't, um, with, with David Byron's voice. I mean, this is Ken Hensley singing, isn't it? And that's, that's the point. And um, it's just, I just prefer his voice. I love the chasing organ throughout it. If you don't like the organ, this album's definitely not for you. It's a really good, really good, solid song. But yeah, now I've got, I have got an issue with Byron's voice. And let's face it, I'm not in a minority of one globally with that view, am I?
0: No, you're not, Richard. It's a very strong
1: start, isn't it? And I th- yeah, I can understand Mark why you say, well, this, this, I'm going to like this album," because there are echoes of Deep Purple here, I This is, this is the, the organ and the drums charge this along the way that Lord and Pace do in a Deep Purple song. So it instantly brought the, the, those comparisons in in my mind. But I, I like the whole song. You've just got to, with a song like this, lay back and let it wash over you and <laughs> consume you, is what I realised. Should we talk about the ending? I mean, they, they must have had fun with that ending that just gets faster and faster and faster and faster. So I, I think it's a great track.
2: It's just anarchic at the end. Here's me, here's me talk, having a problem with anarchy, having just told you how much I oh, love.
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. <sighs> yeah. Um, it's uh, Slightly spoiled by the ending, this track, is, is what I wrote down. And, and, and then it's, it's, it's minor. It's minor. I love this song. I love this song. But, yeah, very deep purple.
0: So track one, look at yourself. The title track uh, slides effortlessly into I Want to Be Free. And this is one of these tracks that, I suppose, in true prog fashion, it goes in all sorts of different directions over the course of the duration, doesn't it? A, a bit like Scotch Mist, it's hard to get a grip of it. Um, but no less kind of fun to listen to. And there's a, it's, it's very spoken. And, and, um, and there's a bit of Beatles in this as well. Again, I think Beatles, are gonna, we're going to keep coming back to the Beatles.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I get that, and the, 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 it's the point you made earlier. Given the relative straightforwardness of "Look at Yourself," or well, the first four fifths of it, um, from now on, this album does become more challenging, very definitely. And there's any amount of stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm referencing the Who again in this. There's a, there's a, there's a lot going on, in I want to be free. There's a lot going on from now on in. There's a lot of distortion on this track as well. In fact, the whole album very, very distorted. Um, Can make it a tough listen, I would suggest. I'm not quite as enamoured with this as I am with Look At Yourself. Some weeks
1: we have an easier listen with some of the albums that are more straight ahead and or we know well. Uh, This week we've had a challenge in three albums that I think for all three it takes a long while to really get your head around them. Uh, And I think I Want To Be Free... I, li- I like the riffs, I like the structure of it. As you say, this is the first album when the real wailing vocals start to appear, which, yeah, I've found the one challenge of uh, of, of this album.
0: We've res- referenced with both MC5 and now with Uriah Heat, we've, we've referenced The Who in both cases, we've referenced The Beatles in both cases, and we will go on through this album and reference other bands that were around... At the same sort of time, within the same kind of ten-year span, and, and it's almost like you can see the way that 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 sort of that this genre cascades down. Because the nearer you are to nineteen seventy, the fewer influences you probably have. Partly because of the fact that there weren't as many bands around, and actually accessing them, hearing their music—you you, you didn't have Spotify, you didn't have mass market distribution channels for music so your your as a as a listener your references are quite limited anyway and i think the, the 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 references that you can hear in all three of these albums is quite narrow isn't it that they converge um but yeah challenging listen so side 1 only three tracks long uh, and it closes with a long epic and probably um i would suggest your eye heaps signature track their stairway to heaven if you like called july morning it ebbs and flows and soars and dips and you know it does all of those things that your good old-fashioned prog rock track does and uh i mean I, I really like it what about you two
2: yeah well, well again elements of it i love i love that or oh, that that organ-led intro into it is wonderful and there's a there's a beautiful vocal section which does incidentally showcase what a really fine voice david byron did have when he kept it real but yeah this this track is full of shape-shifting and uh, let let rich have his go but you've got to talk about this has to be in terms of impact of a song on a country a million miles away this has to be one of the bizarrest stories ever done it july morning you need to talk us through that because it's just crazy
1: so i I don't know whether it goes back to the fact this apparently was the first rock song to be a major hit in the soviet union and whether from that it then found its way to have airplay i presume must have been the only way in bulgaria and as a result it's it's turned into an an annual event i believe and and there is an entire day I, i kind of i'm familiar with the date but there's an entire entire
0: day in in bulgaria Devoted to it,
2: astonishing! They've been out there and performed it, haven't they, at, at that festival?
0: The, the, the cover for the single is um, is as, about as 1970s as you can get, as well. Talk about bell bossoms bell blossoms and flares. It's it's one of those odd songs which when I when you say you like a prog, isn't it by definition that you like some of it?
2: Yeah, always. Oh, absolutely. But never all. And odd and odd is high praise in in the prog yeah. level i'm sure it is yeah that's that's that that's a tick in the box you can all it's, it's almost indescribable this track i mean we're, we're trying our best because you know we're contractually obliged to do so but it's a, you've got to listen to it you've got to listen to it and just see if you get it and there'll be bits you do and bits you don't i just I, to me it just shifts shape endlessly
0: but it goes into some la lying which which really sounds like david byron's forgotten the word. There's no, there's no kind of reason for it other than go, has he, has he just, has he, is that, oh my God, he's forgotten the words.
2: And it's not the first time either on this album, but, and and then he also, he goes a bit, well, listen, there's the elephant in the room, so I'm just going to bring it up. It's no surprise that King Diamond cites David Byron as one of his all-time favourite singers. There, I've said it, let's just get it out there, because the comparison, the parallels are obvious.
1: He certainly starts letting rip the further the album goes on, doesn't he? And we'll we'll come on to uh, his uh, child-in-time moment in a minute. It has the same effect on me as uh, King Diamond does.
2: It just makes me chuckle. You can't – tell you, before we finish, we haven't talked about the king of the Moog synthesizer. What the fuck is a Moog synthesizer? (laughs) Help me out. Are you serious? Mr. Manfred Mann, I'm deadly serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what kind of synthesizer is this?
1: Well, it was, the the Moog was one of those groundbreaking makes types of synthesizer that was, it was a game changer in terms of the sounds that uh, you could get out of this box of electronic tricks.
2: Tony Banks played it a lot as well, but I just wondered why Manfred Mann was the sort of the granddaddy of the Moog necessarily. All you need to know, Steve,
0: is that It's closely related to the theremin, which is a favoured instrument of John Otway. Once you understand that, you understand everything.
2: (laughs) John Otway, the ottomans. I love this show. It's so educational.
0: Okay, so uh, July morning, uh, the Bulgarian almost national anthem, um, (laughs) uh, we come out into... um, Uh, Tears In My Eyes which is when we talk about we've talked uh, in the past on this show about track two side uh, sorry track yeah side two track one uh, tracks and their strength or otherwise I think this is a pretty strong opening to side two isn't it it's probably the best song on, on the album
1: yeah it's 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 got a real to me Led Zepp groove to it. It's it, the opening guitar part could have been Jimmy Page.
2: Yeah, no, no problem about it for me. And also, what I like about this is it's 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 un. I mean, I love prog, but this is unproggy. And as much as you get this, you get this great song, great riff, fantastic bass line. Then they go off into a, a, a solo by Mick Box on guitar. At which point they could have gone anywhere, but now they bring it back into the riff for the big finish. And it's it's simplicity itself is a really really strong song. Even if it's got the moog thrown in once more,
0: I was going to say, in spite of the moog, yeah, and it, it, it's the operatic. This is pseudo operatic vocal as well. That does it work? Doesn't it work? Do you care? Probably not. I, I think it's actually quite a nice counterpoint to the rest of the mm. the song. You know, um,
2: yeah, and he's forgotten the lyrics again. Yeah, and he's la lying his way through the through
0: through the track, which is fine. Yeah, it's absolutely fine. Uh, but that's the, that, the, the laws of prog are there are no laws of prog, surely.
2: And they bring it all back, and they, and they did bring it all back nicely as well.
0: So track two, side two, Shadows of Grief, which has a typically portentous start. It could almost be Hammer Horror by Warfare. The very
1: start of it, I thought it was White Room by Cream. But then once you get over the initial, initial, yeah, evil organ bit and the guitar kicks in, it really gets going, and then a fantastic groove.
0: What's the thoughts on um, on drums in this because they come to the fore on this track?
1: Yeah, what I noticed was it, the the, this, the different drum patterns he uses actually changes the mood of the song. So actually, the riff broadly the same, <laughs> broadly the same. Uh but actually he, the some of the different drum patterns he uses actually changes the, the tempo and, and uh the feel of the song. So yeah, yeah, good yeah, good drums.
0: Now, Steve, before you fall off your chair, I am not saying that David Byron is anything like him, but there is a bit of there's a there's a, a soup son of Paul Rogers in his delivery style here.
2: <laughs> sous-son? fucking is it
0: yeah, a scintilla. Yeah, a scintilla. Yeah. A, 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 a drizzle of juice de, de porgeuse.
2: I I I tell you what, I, I made I, I made the I made the critical error of um writing something down when I first heard this, which I shouldn't have done, because the first thing I wrote about Shadows of Grief was even in the world of prog, there's a very fine line between bollocks and inspired um because this is seriously experimental this this track this is I found this very difficult to, to understand which is fine um and therefore mark which is less fine but yeah it's it's just weird
0: it's it's a Frankenstein track isn't it mm. it's it's about eight different tracks all bolted together
2: mm. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. I was talking earlier about all the, all the the strange segues that were were forthcoming and yeah there's plenty in this it's an odd it's a very very odd concoction and I'm not entirely sure even on three or four listens, that A I get it and B I like it yeah I know what you mean in terms of it all it it really has
1: been patched together Um, and then there's another child in time bit in the middle where he's wailing crazily high which I don't like at all. Um, I mean, it shows off his amazing range, but I've written yeah, yeah. amazing range, but not for me. It's
2: almost like this was unwritten, unrehearsed, and they just went in and, and had a right go. It's entertaining. It's, it's, it's not dull. It's just hard to get your head round.
1: So, yeah, so this is where, what should be done. And uh, my sentence to sum this track up is a bad version of Pink Floyd's brain damage sung by a hungover Dusty Springfield.
2: <laughs> I can't follow that. I can't follow that. I, other than to say I'm really not bothered about it. There you go. That's my contribution. Mark, trump that. Uh,
0: no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, I, and to be honest, Richard, I think um, I, I'm absolutely with you too. I got sub pink floyd here and and frankly whilst i absolutely love pink floyds there is nothing worse than sub pink floyd um and this is this is sub pink floyd to a greater degree than not so yeah it's um i don't know what it's doing here it's 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 complete filler for me
1: i wouldn't lift the needle off the track it has grown on me the more i've listened to it Again, I think you just got to let it wash over you like the rest of the album. Does it? <laughs> I don't think you can use the word it doesn't fit to anything on a prog album. <laughs> no. C- compared to the rest of the stuff on the album, it's a very straightforward track. It's just a light,
2: easy, yeah. Which makes you wonder why they're bothered. It's because it's so contrary to everything else, isn't it?
0: And the final track on Uriah Heaps' Look At Yourself is a track whose name this won't be the last time we mention this evening, I don't think. It's called Love Machine, although the next time we talk about Love Machine, it won't be about this track. They've got John Lord in
1: again for this one. Really heavy organ start. And I felt Echoes of Lazy, which I guess came slightly after this album, didn't it, on... uh... On Machine Head, but it's got that set, similar kind of groove to it. I, l- I like it. I think it's a good finish.
2: Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. I think it's um, it's it's, it's where this album has been best is where um, the kind of the the the, the, the guitars and the organ and the vocals are all the, the, is the wrong word, but they're all working you know, sympathetically together, and it's just coming across as a as a right good heavy blues feel to this. I really like it. I Really like it a lot. But fittingly, um, there's a strange ending and that seems entirely appropriate. Absolutely, you know.
0: Uh, Okay, so let's do highs and lows then. Richard, let's start with you. What what was your high? What was your low?
1: The lows for me, it's between Shadows of Grief and What Should Be Done. Uh, they're, They're down at the bottom. At the top, depending on what mood I'm in, it's a split between tears in my eyes and look at yourself,
0: Steve.
2: Yeah, wow. I mean, I, I did that down to the, the the final dot or the final eye. Um, yeah, shadows and grief, and what should be done, the weak points, um, and tears in my eyes, and and the title track. Look at yourself. Yeah, best for me. Yeah.
0: Well, that's a full house because that would be where I'd go as well. So there we go your eye heaps third album third studio album look at yourself from 1971 as all of the albums are from uh, in this episode that's done dusted two down one to go and uh yeah so for our final treat or is it uh, in 1971 we go to the well classically trained in all sorts of ways super group super prog group um that's did they invent prog, Richard? Opening album sleeve notes.
1: What a question. Uh, I don't know. No, I don't think they did. I'm not sure anyone did. But there's certainly a bunch of these music, various bunch of these musicians hanging around in 1971, weren't they, that were starting to create this stuff and pull it all together. So, yeah, fragile. Um, I. As soon as I looked down the list of 1971 albums and saw this, I thought, well, actually, this does warrant our attention. Uh, And so what is it? So it was the fourth studio album uh, by Yes. It was released on uh, the 26th of November, 1971. It was recorded uh, in September of that year, uh, released on Atlantic, uh, records uh, 39 minutes and 52 seconds, I believe, long. It was produced by Yes and some feel their additional member, Eddie offered uh, in terms of uh, everything that he did for them. And we'll come back to talk about him a bit later. Recorded in AdVision Studios in Fitzrovia in London. And it was the first album to feature Rick Beckman on Keyboards. Uh, yes, his founder member, Tony Kay, uh left uh, just after the previous album, the S yes album, um, uh, that finished touring with it. Um, and it was apparently his reluctance to play, amongst other things, the Moog synthesizer. <laughs> so, yeah, Rick was uh, on Hammond Organ, Grand Piano, um, Electrical Piano, Harpsichord, Mellotron, and the good old Mini Moog. Um, so Steve is going to love this album as much as the last one Bill Bruford on drums and percussion Chris Squire doing an amazing turn on the bass Steve Howe on various electric and acoustic guitars and John Anderson on vocals it reached uh, 7th in the chart in the UK and 4th in the US so it really started to break them um, across the pond and the track listing On side one was roundabouts, followed by Cans and Brahms. We have Heaven and South Side of the Sky on side two. Five percent for nothing. Long distance run around the fish. Mood for a day and Heart of the Sunrise. So, how did you get on with it, guys?
2: Yeah, it's I could I could listen to this last thirty nine minutes fifty two seconds as you alluded to. I could listen to Chris. Guire and bill bruford played for 39 minutes and 52 seconds no problem So the rest of them i've got issues with it's um it's a really as as all good prog albums should be it's a fantastic listen so much going on um but my one takeaway i'm listening all the way through it and reading all the stories and my one i just keep coming back to that one quote that John Anderson says about himself, when Rick Rick he says that Rick Wakeman said of him, John Anderson is the only guy I know trying to save this planet while living on another one. It just, this is just, they're just so away, he is so away with the fairies. And that, the kind of symbiosis between him and Wakeman, two utterly different characters, is priceless. The whole story is priceless. The album's fascinating. And there's a lot to love about it, as all good prog albums should have. And as with all good prog albums, except for the four best from Genesis, um, there are a few low points on it as well. Um, I really struggled with this. (laughs)
0: I'm not a prog fan at the best of times, I have to say. And um, I found this a really, really, really hard listen. And I I know that you two are going to hate me for saying it, but it's just a load of old wank. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it's it's a bunch of people trying to find the quickest way out their own asses.
2: That's uh, I, of, I think Annie Nightingale said something similar at the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, there are bits of it that I quite like, but there, but I, I, I had to force myself to listen uh, that that's the thing. I had to force myself to listen to it and and I think probably, I mean, A, it was never going to be up my street. So it's not, you know, because uh, I'm a good old fashioned boy and I just like my predictable stuff, you know. And when when songs just go off disappearing off into the sunset and kind of noodle around on the outer edges of reality, I'm just like. <sighs> I'm not sure. I don't have the energy to, to, to go with them. And I have the same view of this tool, really. I, I, I don't, I had to work really hard. Um, I, and, and I gave up working, uh, if I'm being absolutely honest. I don't, I, I don't, I've never got on with yes. I've always struggled with them. Um, I, I, I put them into the same category as Tangerine Dream. It's like, I don't understand it, I don't get it. And I've only got maybe three score years and 10 on this earth, and I don't want to spend my time trying.
1: <laughs> uh, brilliant. Yeah, and I think that's why I thought it was worthy of our consideration. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, and I agree.
0: I, uh, and I, the, the, you know, I'm not saying you've done it. full back catalogue. No, no, no. All I was going to say was I, I, I agree with you. I think it is worth our attention because – because there, there are a lot of people for whom this is is really good stuff and I, so I, when I say I don't like it that's that's more about me not about the musicians anyway carry on sorry
1: <laughs> well I think we've uh, as we've gone through this evening um, if we had a prog dial we've slowly been turning it around haven't we <laughs> and now we're we're, we're, we're we're close with a couple of these to getting to 11 and I'd I I love a couple of tracks on this album, uh, and I but and, and actually they are they're, they're the bookends of this album. But we'll talk more about everything in in a minute. And then in the middle, hmm, um, I think uh, particularly with Uriah Heap and and then this one, and it's coming. It keeps coming back, doesn't it? In our discussions about, I think there are albums that are held up as fantastic examples of a band. But generally, it's because of one or two tracks on that album um, that does not necessarily make it a great end-to-end album. Which is why what we are doing here on these podcasts is just that bit different.
0: Yeah, and and like you, if I mean, I have forced myself to listen to it, and I quite like Roundabout, and I and I quite like bits and pieces of. Other tracks, and I think that's the point I was coming. I was trying to make when we were talking about Uriah Heap, is that I don't prog is not something that most people like everything of. So mm. the, the the more proggy you go, the less I'm inevitably going to like, and the more mainstream you go, the more I will like. So yeah, I am something of a heathen yeah. Uh, yeah. when it comes to, to progressive rock. And
1: and I, and I think and I think this is why you know a, a band like Yes does does challenge. <laughs> You to the extremes. They admit themselves you know, the way they write the songs is they do write them in separate parts. So they don't actually write in one in one you know what one cohesive song. They actually come up with various ideas. And and John Anderson was saying that when with the technology that was around at the time, they would literally record these songs in bits and then mix the 24 tracks down onto a half-inch tape. And then that would be put on a shelf. They'd then record the next bit on 24 track, go down to a half-inch tape. That would be that reel would be stacked on top of the previous one. And then they, those, those, those half-inch tapes would be physically spliced together to create the, the end song. Um, So it it really is the challenging end of of progressive rock. Right. Well, shall we uh, just see how many bits this album has
0: got? Well, I'm certainly happy to sit here and listen to you two talk about it, yes.
1: Then let's start this album. And it starts side one with Roundabout and one of the most famous, yes, songs and it was written whilst they were touring around Scotland on a tour bus, uh, travelling in between sort of cities and mountains and locks and going round a ton of roundabouts. They started singing roundabouts as they went round the roundabout and that became a melody that then became a song and uh, eventually it was uh, built into this, what, nearly eight-minute epic
2: I think, I think it's a fantastic track. I really do. It's, um, I know it was their first single, presumably not at 8 minutes 30. There must have been a radio edit, I imagine. But um, I think it's got it's got a beautiful opening, early introduction into Chris Squire's bass playing, by the way, lots of keyboards, um, uh, lovely melody, those telltale yes harmonies, which have never changed. And, yeah, probably too long, but still a great track. I quite liked it. It was all right, yeah.
0: I, I, that was fine. Yeah, it was probably. I love the bassline in it. Um, it, 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 it is does seem to be a cover of the Miracles, later covered by Wham. Love Machine. I Quite like that as well.
1: Probably the most accessible track on the album, don't you think? Uh, yeah, it was. It was heavily edited for for radio. I think down to about half the
2: length. Yeah. The one compar- the, the, where I control parallels with Genesis, who, as you know, I absolutely adore, especially that sort of four-album period from Trespass up to Suddenly England by the Pound. The, the, the Tony Banks keyboard—you get it here with Rick Wakeman. When Rick Wakeman keeps it simple and keeps it straightforward, and, just, and it's really nice. I mean, as as we will reveal later, there are moments of madness from Mister Wakeman, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but I love I, I love this. I think it's a it's a really really nice track.
0: So there's the dichotomy, though, isn't there? Because you've just said, which I agree, when Rick Wakeman keeps it simple, it's much more accessible, much easier to listen to. But of course, keeping things simple is not in the nature of progressive rock, is it? So, of of all the songs on this album, this is the one that I could listen to. I'm not necessarily sure I'd put it on a Spotify playlist, but I would quite enjoy it if it came on, you know, if Spotify threw it up as a, a random choice on a, a, a listening session, which I can't say about the rest of the album, but when it starts going off and wandering down alleyways, at that point, I kind of, my attention wanders. And I don't have the, yeah. the aural skills. Uh,
1: for me, the songs are stories and they take you on a journey. We've, we've talked a bit about Rush songs, you know, uh, we've talked about Red Barchetta in, in, the, in the same way. So the... The mindset I have, like when listening to this, is you, you're in Scotland, you're travelling around. You're, you, there's there's a, there's almost a in, in the, the galloping piece in the middle. I, there's a feeling for me of, of it, it's, it's getting busy, as traffic, there's speed, and um, and so there's more of that soundscape. So yeah, that's why I enjoy the more wiggly bits in this
2: song. So Mark, you won't be tempted by the uh, the 2015 release with the additional CD tracks which includes Roundabout the rehearsal take, early mix <laughs> and so much more besides
1: And Roundabout is followed by uh, Brahms and List, oh no sorry, Camden Brahms, which seems to be one of several fillers on the album. This is a, 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 a whether they just recorded Rick Waitman's audition, I'm not sure. Um, he's a very, very good keyboard player, but this with uh, two or three other tracks on the album, which uh, I mean, we're not going to rate because they're so short, but it should really, by rights, pull the album down a bit because they're just filler, aren't
2: they? A bit? <laughs> it, it, it'd take, it, it'd take it through the drain pipes. Even, <laughs> even, Wait, even Waitman called it dreadful. When I first listened to this... All I got in my head, all I got in my head was um Monty Python's naked organist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, what I got was I just I just felt this overwhelming urge to say, and where's my washboard? <laughs> <laughs> it's all very musical. <laughs> <laughs> this is the point is that what should have been just a bit of asking around in the studio during some downtime. Has inexplicably found its way onto an album. Uh, it's just
2: nonsense. Yeah, yeah well, Ponsoli and Progali, and Rich, you'll, you'll bear me out on this, that each of them wrote, was was asked or volunteered to write a track each, didn't they? And just because it's so anal and arty, and all, oh, aren't we the greatest? And so this is what Rick came up with, and it's, you know, it's just, he called it dreadful, and it is. You just wonder why he why even bother putting it on. I think what a stupid idea.
0: Not as stupid as what comes after it, for
2: fucking hell. Tell the moon, dog, tell the march Ah
1: <laughs> Oh, dear. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, track three, track with a little T called We Have Heaven, um, which is another very short filler with a bit of uh, John Anderson uh, vocals on it. They talk about writing bits of songs, this sounds like a bit of song they couldn't find a place to put anywhere in anything else.
0: So why didn't they just go? So we won't.
1: I, I, th- I think you're right. I think you're
2: absolutely right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. It's making it's making a prog point. I'm sure it is. That's all. That's all it is. L- look look at us. We, we we've done this, which is bollocks. But you yeah. know, and even the am dram finish with the slamming door and the footsteps is just.
1: Yeah, I think we're all agreed on those, 2 aren't we? Well, we have um, gives way to a proper tune, a proper song called South Side of the Sky. This, again, this has got a load of parts, has not it? All <laughs> thrown together. And um, we've got a funky start. Then there's keyboards. Then there's some jazz-influenced stuff. Then there's a piano break. Then there's a bit of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Um, and then a heavier ending.
2: It starts superb. It's a brilliant opening riff. Um, I love the opening, you know. But it, as you you made the point, it's rather like roundabout, slightly shorter version of it. But it's kind of been patched together. So I love the opening. Then it goes into a piano section, which I'm really not sure about. Then we get another two and a half minutes of just lyricless choral work, which is beyond tiresome. But they bring it back into that opening riff again, which is spot on. And it's um, accordingly, it's a track that's tough to mark because there's so much good stuff in there, but. During the middle, there's some well, shite.
1: Yeah, but this typifies. I think that if the, their style was to actually uh, write and record pieces and then put them together, it was the putting together that didn't
0: work. It's very easy for me to take the piss and be completely dismissive, isn't it? But this is the point at which I'm reminded of a week ago when we chose these albums, or when when I was looking for an album to choose, and I I'd considered this and i remember reading kind of an album review one paragraph album review by somebody and they said the point at which yes finally become accessible and i'm sitting there thinking because i was this point i was listening kind of flicking through thinking jesus if this is accessible what what was what they did before like and I've, i haven't gone and found out but this track started off really strongly. I thought, well, maybe I've misjudged it. You know, maybe actually I've just been quick, too quick to judge because I often am. And, you know, maybe uh, actually this is is going to be an album that Carla delivers. And it did for about 30 seconds. And then it goes off into other stuff, which I'm sure if you're a Yes fan, you think it's just marvellous. But for everybody else, I'm just sitting there thinking, I just don't get it. I don't don't get
2: it. I don't think they became accessible till uh, going for the one. That would be my uh, turning point commercially. Are you
0: really familiar with their
2: output then, Steve? Going for the one, I loved to bit, yeah. No, but just,
0: just uh, within context, are you...
2: I wouldn't be able to date them if you if, if you blind tested me. No, absolutely not. No, so I, I don't you see heard that them. progression. I don't see that progression, but I know enough about them,
1: yeah. So moving on to side two we start with another weird interstitial in 5% for nothing again not quite sure why it's there it could qualify as the worst track 2 side side 2 track 1 ever could it um, but that gives way to long distance runaround. so this starts again with yet more uh, rick drums and bass come in very jazz influenced this one it absolutely shows what amazing musicians they are I mean, unbelievable musicians, but it, it, they come up with something that is just fine.
2: Further, further proof if you needed that Chris Squire is one of the world's greatest bass players. I think it's a really nice piece, complex, yes. I don't know, I like it, like it a lot.
0: I, I don't have a particular issue with this track. I quite like it. It's it reminds me, it reminds me a bit of Christopher Cross in some ways, actually.
1: Well, it's probably a good time to talk about. John Anderson's vocal style. Your your views on it, gents?
2: I don't have, I don't have a problem with it at all. I, I, for for a music that's for a musical style that's out there and weird, he's he sits in nicely. The his work, and when he's on his own, yeah, i have i got a problem with it. Is, is, is there an issue as such?
0: I I suspect it's a bit marmite, isn't it? So uh, I think where I am with John Anderson is. I loved one of my favorite songs ever, of all time, is John and Van Gallis, "I'll Find My Way Home," and I love his voice on that. I love his voice on this. I don't, I, I don't have a problem with John Anderson's voice at all, actually, um, but I can imagine that there will be those who do. My, my issue with Yes is not his voice. It's, it's, I think it's probably Steve Howe and Rick Wakeman actually.
2: Yeah, I, I, I exempt Squire and Bruford from any criticism whatsoever. I too love
1: John Anderson's voice. I think it's I think it's re- really, really unique. And yeah, as you say, Mark, in the right place, places places is absolutely magical. So some yes songs. The stuff mm. he did with Vangelis, you know, that, that whole album Friends of Mr. Cairo is just brilliant. When he sang with Mike Oldfield, uh his, 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 I mean it's almost Ethereal as his voice, it, it's just it's just lighter than air at times, and it it really really works. He, he, he talked a lot about uh, how how he worked with Chris Squire and uh, and actually how the, the his voice they worked quite a lot on how the bass and his voice uh, worked with each other, and how the the melodies of the bass actually uh, gave him uh, a, a, you know quite an amazing. Oh, what, contour? I don't know how you'd say it to um, to, to then sing above. Right, so long-distance runaround is uh, followed by the fish, or excuse me whilst I try and pronounce this, Skindleria prematuris. And forgive me, I couldn't be asked to look up what that actually meant. Did either of you to
2: No, it's the, only, it's the only lyric in the song though, isn't it? it's something to do with fish predictably which i believe is chris squire's nickname is that what it's um is that why this track that he wrote is called the fish oh i don't know ah
1: yeah i mean it's two minutes 39 seconds it's hardly a track again is it and uh, i mean doesn't do uh, a lot for me
2: The subtitle of this song is Schindleria prematuris, which is an obscure neotenic marine fish from the Pacific Ocean. You did ask.
0: Well, that doesn't sound pretentious at all. What what I think is, I think it's quite beautiful, that Schindler's fish and Schindler's list are so close together. They could have called it
2: Schindler's list. Yeah, enough about you. I've got more to come. The story is that Chris Squire, this is so prog, the story is that Chris Squire had the melody and wanted to sing the name of a fish that had eight syllables and dispatched a roadie, maybe Michael Tate, to find one. And the best he could find had nine, which is why the last syllable in Schindleria prematuris tails off. You couldn't make this shit up. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what
0: that that makes me love this album slightly more genuinely i'm genuinely impressed by that and i i have a slightly warmer feeling towards it as a result
1: prog albums <laughs> should come with extensive sleeve notes
2: yeah definitely definitely yeah and a and a grade seven guitar solo oh by the way
0: Yes. yes. Talking of which,
2: yeah, yeah. So the penultimate
1: track, "Mood for a Day," he's a very accomplished guitarist. Uh, not a lot else I can say.
2: It's the fourth. Is it the fourth instrumental on this album? That's at least three, maybe four too many in it.
1: Yeah. If you, you know, if you count five five percent, yeah, there are, okay. there are four four tracks on this album that are just filler. And so we arrive at the end of Fragile with the, the last track, which is Heart of the Sunrise, which kicks off really, really well. Fantastic bass. Absolutely fantastic bass. Um, I mean, it, and the bass was high up in the mix throughout this, you know, Take Note Metallica. And apparently, it, this song's about being lost in a city.
2: Yeah, it's bassy and it's funky and it's. Um little bit of psychedelic. And I, I, the first three minutes of this song, what is it, what does it check in at? Ten and a bit. Um, so there's there's, there's, we've we got plenty of episodes um, to Heart of the Sunrise. But the first episode is I, – I just think it's as good as anything on this album. It's really lovely and hypnotic and, you know, I, I, this this would qualify for – this would pass my hammock test, no, question, no questions asked. But the, the rest of the track kind of um, – well, it's it's as challenging as, as as you'd have expected it to be.
0: I think it's an interesting word that hypnotic because I think you could apply that to quite a lot of this album, in a good way. Yeah, 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 in a good way. But there there are there are armchair moments, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning moments, in the you know lights out with with a you know a whiskey or whatever. Well, I can imagine myself being quite content to sit there and listen to some of this album just if you but but for me it, it's individual parts of complex songs that if you bolted them together or had them as standalone pieces of music i'd probably get on with it a lot a lot better so there are bits of each song that i like i just don't like them as a whole uh, yeah
1: Heart of the sunrise is is, I, I, is real real prog for me the, the, all of the different movements in it this this again not a track you can have on in the background.
2: So we're not we're not certainly not doubting their uh, their musicianship, and it's um it's just you know th- this is this is frog at its real experimental stage, isn't it? It's it's a really really fascinating track, and and it's a really really fascinating album. So much going on.
1: So yes, yeah, so let's talk about highs and lows, then, gents.
0: Shall we okay. start with you? Um, my high, um, be roundabout. My low, pick one from any of the rest of them. Steve,
2: yeah, I mean it depends what you know, what what you're marking here, really. But of, of, of the tracks that last a reasonable amount of time, um, I do, I, I love roundabout more than heart of the sunrise, I, and, I, and I love South Side of the Sky as well. I think it'd be between roundabout and South Side of the Sky. Um, the weak link, if we've got to mark it, you know, the fish move for a day they're, they're just they're just what they are
1: yeah we're already not marking three of the tracks because they're super short um so i think we do have to mark the fish and move for a day um and they're my weak points uh otherwise we'll be marking the <laughs> two or three tracks yeah. <laughs> and roundabouts my high Okay, so um, that brings us to the end of Yes's "Fragile," the third of our albums for tonight's episode from 1971. We'd now better get our pens out and mark these
0: reviews complete. Initializing rating process.
2: Okay, so we've um, we, well we scoured the uh, the infertile plains that were 1971. Find three. Signs of life, or <laughs> well, they wouldn't believe it by the scores. Um, yeah, so there you go. That's MC5's high time. Uriah Heaps, look at yourself. Yes, it's fragile. Um, into our Hall of Fame. And let's just say they're not that high. Um, we, we, we kicked off with high time. That was my choice. Um, and we scored it thus. Rich gave it flat seven. Mark gave it 7.11. I gave it 7.5 for a total of 7.2. Uriah Heap. look at yourself. Mark, what were the scores for that one?
0: Okay, so you, Steve, you gave it 6.35714, uh, so 6.4. If We were rounding up. Uh, Richard, you gave it a flat 7. Uh, two albums, you raced it exactly the same as MC5's High Time, and uh, I gave it 6.31429. So uh, the album that I brought along was the one that um, I marked lowest of the three of us. Richard, how did you get on with yes? Steve
1: marked Fragile 6.75. Mark (laughs) scored it a lofty 4.917. I think the lowest Mark scored any album. We'll just have to go and check that. And I gave uh, Fragile a 6.41. And that gave it an overall score of 6.028.
0: So there you go. Those are the scores. Um, who brought the keys this time for the Hall of Fame? Was that you, Steve?
2: Yeah, I've got a baby. Let me, uh, let me unlock this bitch. It's time to put the rock in a hard place, opening the Hall of Fame. Now that I'm looking at the higher ends of the Hall of Fame, and oddly enough, None of them are there. So we have to go deep into uh, our 63 albums now in our ever-burgeoning league table of quality. Um, And these three are the back end big time. So, yeah, high time MC5 is coming at 46, which I think is lower than it should have got. But, you know, we are a democracy. Um, Look at yourself. Uriah Heap is in at 57, which is kind of pretty depressing. But uh, bottom... Ten and fragile by yes is only spared bottom spot by rock until you drop from Raven. So yeah, not in terms of in terms of league table representation, not a great night. But in terms of fun, that's been a good episode. Yeah, what's
1: interesting, of course, is we were talking earlier about uh, the uh, the comparisons of uh, vocals. Between Uriah Heap and Merciful Fate, and where the two of them are side by side in uh, in our table with uh, Melissa by Merc- Merciful Fate, just a tiny, tiny bit above. Look at yourself and, and Uriah Heap.
2: That's, that's that really is interesting, and also the, just below Uriah Heap, it, it's sort of sandwiched by King Diamond and Ingwe Moundstein in one of the. Proced- Possibly the most annoying rock sandwich you'll ever come across, but. Uh, <laughs> yes. But yeah, no threats. Um, no threats to the top of the table, where um, Led Zeppelin four, Deep Purple's Machine Head, and Metallica, Metallica are still making up the one, two, three.
0: So we've got thirty-seven uh, tracks to go until the trap door starts to operate on this Hall of Fame, or at least until the trapdoor to the top 100 starts to operate uh, on the Hall of Fame. it's um, In terms of where these albums tonight sit, it's not been a great night, but it has been a great week in all sorts of ways, in terms of having a bit of a, an odyssey of discovery. Um, but that's it for another week. Uh, glad to have had your company. Thank you very much. Boys, we'll see each other again in seven days' time. And um, until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.
2: enter sad men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of uk and international copyright law to make sure the rock rolls forever off mark steve and rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service